Well, we are in Psalm 110 this morning, Psalm 110. Uh, I'm calling this psalm, this lesson, um, the sovereign reign of our warrior priest, which I hope is a title that makes you a little bit uncomfortable in you know, all kinds of ways. A warrior priest, that doesn't sound right. And the, the priest's sovereign reign, that, that just sounds wrong. It sounds uncomfortable. But it's fitting because this is really kind of an uncomfortable psalm that we're dealing with. It's a confusing psalm. It's a difficult psalm. But at the same time, it's one of the, if not the greatest psalm of all 150 in the Psalter. It's more or less considered across the board the crown jewel of the Psalter. Uh, one person even goes as far as to say, this is the prophet David's creed. It tells us exactly what he believes about the coming Messiah. Because what we have here is a prophetic psalm or a messianic psalm, one that clearly intends to point us forward, not you know to look at Psalm 110 itself, but to look forward to Jesus Christ, our Messiah and Lord. In fact, Psalm 110 is the most quoted chapter of Old Testament scripture in the entire New Testament. Uh, The apostles found it to be crucial and central to their understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and and really what Jesus is doing. Uh, But just because it's essential and crucial does not mean it's easy. Um, In fact, even during Jesus' day, there was uncertainty among the most learned of the Old Testament scholars of how to understand it and apply it. I mean, you guys remember Matthew uh, 22, verse 41 through 46. Jesus poses this question to the Pharisees. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they say, well, the son of David, of course. He goes, okay, then. And then he quotes 110. He says, how then is David in the spirit calling him Lord when he says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, then how is he David's son? And Matthew says, and nobody was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to to ask him any more questions. So this is the psalm that silences your opponents, that causes them to be like, I'm not asking any questions of this guy because he's going to come back and ask me about Psalm 110. It's difficult because standing on its own, Psalm 110 produces more questions than it does answers. But when you read it in light of all of biblical revelation, in light of all of scripture, when we see it as a prophecy that's hurling us towards Jesus Christ, born and living a righteous life, crucified, raised, and ascended to heaven, we see it as a glorious portrait proclaiming the sovereign reign of our warrior priest. So let's go ahead and read Psalm 110. Psalm 110, a psalm of David, which is going to be significant. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. 
You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So the way we're going to tackle this this morning is we're going to quickly acquaint ourselves with what's going on in this psalm. But then we're going to spend the lion's share of our time this morning looking at three problems, three questions, three difficulties that arise out of this psalm that point us to Jesus. And we're doing this not, you know, for its own sake, for an academic reason, but we're doing this so we will understand who our sovereign warrior priest is and so that we would joyfully submit to his leadership. Uh, so, so let's start by looking at the psalm itself. If you take all seven verses, I mean, it's a big old psalm, seven whole verses, it easily breaks up into two pieces, right? In verse one, you have God saying something, and then a direct quote, the Lord said to my Lord. And then in verse four, again, you have God saying something, and then a direct quote, the Lord has sworn. These kind of oracles from God frame our two sections, <clears throat> Right? And there's some parallels within the sections, too. I mean, you have the direct quotations in verses 1 and 4. You have repetition of Lord in the next verse, so that would be verses 2 and 5. You have this idea of the day in verses 3 and 5, the body language of head and feet in 1 and 6 and 7. But for our purposes this morning, it's enough to simply say we have two sections. We'll call section 1 the sovereign reign, that's verses 1 through 3, and section 2 the warrior priest, that's verses 4 through 7. So let's dig into section one a bit, the sovereign reign. The Lord, verse one, that's God himself using his covenant name, the name he revealed to Moses in the burning bush, pronounced Yahweh or Jehovah. The Lord God Almighty says to my Lord, which is a different word here, this would be like a um, any sort of ruler or king or sovereign with a lowercase s, I mean, the word here would be like a proper English lord or lady, you know, Robert Crawley, Earl of Grantham, if you're a Downton Abbey kind of person, would be lord to anybody under him. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, which is, I mean, quite the coronation. You don't even need Garth Brooks to show up at this inauguration. Don't just sit on the throne of Jerusalem. Sit at my right hand in heaven, while the Father works to make your enemies your footstool, that is to utterly defeat them and put them in submission to you. So this king, he has a sovereign rule, a great position, because he is seated in the place of prominence at the Father's right hand. He is with God, and God is fighting for him. This is then explained in verses 2 and 3. We have the big idea in 1 and then explanation in 2 and 3. Later we'll see the big idea in 4, explanation 5 through 7. But look at verse 2. The Lord is the one sending forth this king's scepter, thus letting him rule amid all of his enemies, because it's the Lord's power that, that flows through him. And then in verse 3, we show the mighty power of this king. So the language is really difficult in verse 3. But the big idea is that there's going to be numerous 
voluntary troops coming to serve this king. They show up as numerously and as suddenly as the dew of the morning, and they have the vigor of youth, which, I mean, if you ever want to come and serve in youth ministry with me, you will see that youth definitely gives vigor and energy that, I guess, being in your 30s or older takes away from you. I mean, this army, it desires to be there. It wants to serve their king. They're strong. They're numerous. They're prepared. They're ready to fight on behalf of this sovereign king. So we could summarize verse or section one as this. God himself installs a king to sit and to rule from his right hand. This king has sovereign power as shown by two things. Number one, God himself fights for him. And number two, he has a massive, loyal army that is always ready to go to battle. So that's section one. Section two parallels it. Um, you know, again, we have God speaking in verse four. The only thing stronger than God speaking is God swearing, which we have here. Look at verse four. The Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind, that this king is not only a king, but he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek, as you might remember, shows up in uh, Genesis 14. So uh, through a series of unfortunate events, Lot, being Abraham's nephew, right? He, uh, he's living in Sodom. And some kings go out to battle, and the result is all the people and the goods and the livestock and the treasures of Sodom get taken as prisoners and slaves. So when Abraham gets this news that his nephew's been taken as a slave, he takes on the role of a mercenary. He goes, he fights the kings. He gets back Lot and all the other people and all the livestock and all the gold. And he goes and he returns it to the king of Sodom so they can go home. But on his way back from this battle, um, he, gets, he gets stopped by Melchizedek. So, so Genesis 14, 18 through 20 reads like this. It says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So Melchizedek, king of Salem, which would later be called Jerusalem, um, he's a priest of God. He's able to bless Abraham as a priest would. And Abraham, Abram, I guess at this time, recognizes his power and his authority as priest. And he shows this by giving a tithe to, the, to this priest, a tenth of all the spoils of his victories. And that's what we know. Melchizedek pops up for three verses in Genesis 14, and then he disappears from the Bible until we get to Psalm 110, verse 4, where you know our special sovereign king is also sworn as a priest. Not following a priesthood that's outlined in Leviticus, you know, the priesthood of Aaron, the priesthood that David would have known well, but rather following the priesthood of Melchizedek forever. Now we get the explanation of this verse in 5 through 7. 
And it sounds a little like two and three in this section, because instead of using priestly imagery, it's, um, it's militaristic, right? We have, again, the right hand in verse five, God and this king-priest warrior are utterly united. They are shattering their opponents. They're bringing about judgment on their enemies. They're even shattering enemy kings and chiefs. This warrior priest will not grow tired, just like his armies would in verse 3, because he's going to be refreshed by the water of the brook. Again, they're fighting in the desert here. And he will hold his head high in proud, triumphant victory. So when you take this psalm as a whole, it seems to be a coronation psalm, right? A royal psalm proclaiming the glory of the newly installed king of Israel. But as we look at some of the details in it, uh, we realize this psalm actually creates more problems than it's going to solve for us. We need to read it in light of all of Scripture. We need to read it in light of Jesus Christ in order to make heads or tails of these problems. So let me, let me show you three of the big problems that we run into in Psalm 110 and how they point us forward to Jesus. So problem number one, and this is the problem Jesus raised in Matthew 22. Problem one is, who is the Lord in verse one, right? Because here's the order of command in Israel. You have God, then you have the king, then you have lesser rulers, you know, governors, things of that nature, and then you have everyone else. So if just some guy wrote this psalm, Asaph or Korah or one of the other psalmists, then, then we're fine. It says, God said to my Lord, David, the king, Sit at my right hand. We love that. The problem is, verse 1, well, in the Hebrew, verse 1, in English, we put it as a kind of a header. It says, a psalm of David. So who's in authority over David? Just God himself. So who is God speaking to when David says, my Lord? Right? And even if this was written to a future king, right? If this was written to Solomon, David wouldn't be able to call Solomon my king, my lord, because the only way David's son gets to be king is if David is dead. So Solomon would never be an authority over David. Um, so we run into an issue here. And, and some people would say, yep, that's a problem. There must be a typo here, right? We saw this a couple weeks ago, um, I think when Bill was teaching, where this must say, not a psalm, of David, but a psalm for David. What if we read it that way? That solves our problems, right? But if that's the case, what do you do when Jesus says in Mark 12, 36 that David wrote it? Or when Peter follows suit in Acts 2, uh, 33, saying that David penned these words in the Holy Spirit, right? Don't you think Jesus knows who wrote Psalm 110? Don't you think the Holy Spirit who inspired Psalm 110 knew what he did when he was then inspiring Mark or the book of Acts. So we're, so we're left wondering, okay, who is Psalm 110 actually about? And the psalm doesn't answer this for us, but the, but the New Testament does, right? Because if somehow, in some way, David's son is actually greater than David, then this prophecy would make sense, that there's a prophetic utterance between God and somebody greater than David, even though it's David's son. But for that to happen, you would, need, you would need what? You would need David's son 
to be divine, but not God the Father divine, because God the Father has to talk to him. So he needs to be God, but he needs to be with God. But at the same time, he needs to be a legitimate human son for him to be David's son. Um, and, and he needs to somehow ascend to the throne, which sets up this idea, this trajectory, this path, this line of thought that says, okay, maybe when Messiah comes, he's not just going to be the greatest of kings, greater than David. Maybe he's going to be completely different. Maybe he's going to be special. Maybe our Messiah is going to be true God of true God, both God and man, the second person of the Trinity, one who both was God and was with God, John 1.1. Psalm 110 makes complete and total sense if we realize we have a doctrine of the Trinity and we're talking about Jesus Christ here in his heavenly coronation at his ascension from earth to heaven, to sit in the throne of God. So students, you know, you get the ascension of Jesus Christ in youth group tonight. So just, you know, sit here, wait a few hours. We'll talk more about this tonight. But for those of you who are, um, we'll say too mature for youth group, um, know that while this psalm speaks of Jesus generally, it specifically speaks of Jesus Christ's ascension from earth to heaven. Because only then does the Lord say to our Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. I mean, we as a church, as, as Christians in general, rarely talk about the ascension of Jesus Christ. It's a weird holiday tucked in. I don't know, I think on a Thursday in May is Ascension Day. Um, but it's a crucial doctrine. And so I want to make sure when we, when we see it in Scripture, we're talking about the ascension of Jesus Christ. Him leaving earth for heaven actually matters because that's when God crowns him as king at his right hand. So by understanding verse 1, we realize the sovereign warrior priest isn't just some king, but he is the ascended Lord Jesus Christ. So if this psalm is all about Jesus, then that means it's also all about us. Because when verse 3 says, your people will offer themselves freely, who are his people? Now we're talking about us, the people, the servants, the family of our risen king. We are the ones who offer ourselves willingly into his service as living sacrifices for him, even to the point of pouring out our lives as an offering to him, giving everything we have, even beyond what we have, with voluntary joy to serve with and to fight for our risen and ascended king. Uh, I reference a couple of scriptures there. This would be Romans 12.1, Philippians 2.17, and 2 Corinthians 8.3, if you're a note taker. So we go out and fight with God, and we fight for God, for this Messiah, under his authority, not with weapons that hurt, but with words that heal. We go with the artillery of love and of righteousness and of life and holiness. And God causes us to stand firm, giving us the vigor of youth as we fight with this warrior priest. We are under his mighty reign because the Lord said to our Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. I mean, there is 
the problem with Psalm 110 is there's a ton to say here. If you want to get into application of this, Ephesians chapter 2 is basically the application and the truths that flow out of Ephesians chapter 1, specifically verses 20 through 22, where Paul cites Psalm 110 about Jesus being raised up and seated at God's right hand. So if you want to say, okay, what does this mean? Verse 1, for me specifically, go and read Ephesians 2, maybe before Women's Bible Study tomorrow. Get a quick refresher. Um, but, but we don't have time for that now, so let's keep moving to problem number two. Problem number two in Psalm 110. It's probably problem like number seven, but we're only dealing with three of them, so it's number two for us. It's the whole priesthood issue in verse four, right? So humanly speaking, why is David king? David is king because Saul and Saul's descendants are not king, right? This king usually passes to a son. But Saul and his entire household was rejected in 1 Samuel 13 because Saul did not stay in his own lane, right? So after a battle, Samuel the priest was running late. And so Saul decided that he would go ahead, and instead of waiting for the priest to come to the king, he would go ahead and he would make the sacrifices on his own. But we know from the law that the priesthood and the kingdom should never cross. You have to stay in your own lane. The king is not a priest. The priest is not a king. And because Saul muddied the lines between the kingdom and the priesthood, and he acted outside of, of his own jurisdiction, the kingdom was taken from Saul, taken from Saul's family, and it was given to David instead. But now, of course, in Psalm 110.4, we have this exalted Messiah king figure being sworn in by God, not only as king, but as a priest, combining the kingdom and the priesthood, combining the two things that should never touch, which now sets in motion another line, another path, another trajectory that would eventually destroy the priesthood and the sacrifices and the law and the ceremonies and the rituals that David knew and loved, and it would, would replace them with something better. It would destroy the Old Covenant. Maybe we should say it would fulfill the Old Covenant and Aaron's priesthood and replace it with something even better. So, so follow this logic, right? If the eternal king is going to be a priest, not a priest following Aaron, then the eternal priesthood isn't going to be one of Aaron's priests, right? If the eternal priesthood is Melchizedekian, don't try and spell that, then the eternal priesthood cannot be Aaronic of Aaron because it's of Melchizedek. So that means Aaron's priesthood cannot be eternal and cannot be permanent. And if, the, if, the, if Aaron's priesthood described in Exodus and Leviticus is not permanent, that means the law that describes Aaron's priesthood is not permanent either. 
Because if it was permanent, Aaron's priesthood couldn't go away. So it's temporary. It serves a purpose and a time and a place and a people. But Aaron's priesthood was never God's eternal intention to have as the only final plan. God always had something better in mind. He had a better Melchizedekian priesthood. So let me let me use an illustration that I've used before. Um, but a couple of years ago, it's Labor Day weekend. We're getting ready to celebrate Ella's first birthday party because, you know, it's first kid and first birthday. We have to have a huge, themed, fancy, Pinterest-worthy party that my wife planned, and it was wonderful. Um, and, I mean, in my mind, the only reason to have a birthday party, well, there's two reasons, cake and punch. And so I'm, I'm getting ready to bake a cake, and I put the cake in the oven, and it doesn't cook. Turns our oven went out Labor Day weekend, birthday party weekend. It's still under warranty, so they're going to come and fix it, but it's Labor Day weekend. Do you honestly think I can get somebody out on Labor Day to fix my oven before her party? So what I do is I just pull out the stove, right, open up the back, and I realized one of the wires leading down to the bottom heating element overheated. It fried. It disconnected. So you don't have wires touching metal. That doesn't make a circuit. And you don't have electricity flowing. It doesn't heat up. Makes sense. So I uh, take out my pocket knife and I scrape off the wire. I grab about two feet of electric tape and I put it down on the burner and I start wrapping, 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 wrapping. I don't know if my home insurance wants to hear this, but maybe we shouldn't be recording. And it's wrapped in several layers of electrical tape. Surely it's a fire hazard, Ron, right? Um, but I had cake to bake, and I turned it on. It heated up, pushed the oven back, made the cake. It was delicious. So once I get the kitchen you know, back in order, Chrissy asks, did you fix it? And I say, it is not fixed, but it is definitely working, right? It still needs to have the Samsung guy come out and replace the wires in the bottom heating element. But what we have will work for now. What David is telling us here, what David's telling the Israelites of his day, is that the entire law, the entire priesthood, is not the, the appliance repairman. What we have now is two feet of electrical tape getting us into communion with God. It works. It serves its purpose. But it is not eternal. We should be thankful for it. But we shouldn't depend on it like this is what the final intention actually is. There's something better coming. One day, we will have a priest who will serve in a better priesthood. He will, you know, to keep the oven analogy, he will remove the faulty heating element that short circuits everything, and he will replace it with functioning ones, so that this law, this temporary solution, doesn't need to be external from us, telling us what to do. Rather, it will be in us, convincing us, changing us, making us into people of righteousness. This law, it's a temporary solution, but it's no longer necessary when God actually comes and he fixes the problem. This Messiah, following after Melchizedek, brings us to God, not by externals, but by removing our hearts of stone and replacing them with hearts of flesh. By not only being the priest, but also being the sacrifice. 
and removing the hostility between God and his people. One day, this law will become obsolete when the priesthood and the kingdom are combined into one, no longer separated. And Psalm 110.4 sets this trajectory. And we have our hope pushed forward. It's strengthened and it's reinforced by later prophets who look forward to this day when the kingdom and the priesthood are in one. Uh, Zechariah in chapter 6 speaks of a unified priest king. And, I mean, this is a significant theological issue with tons of application flowing out of it. But we got about 10 more minutes, so we can't deal with it this morning. Um, but that's okay, because when we were in Hebrews last year, the entire chapter of Hebrews 7 is about Jesus being our Melchizedekian high priest and what that actually means for us. So if you're, you know, interested or just super confused, you can go on our website. You can go back to December 2019, the Hebrew 7. I taught two lessons there, a greater priest, and then the second was a greater priesthood. Um, you can listen to those, or at the very least, go and read Hebrews 7 to see what kind of application comes out of Psalm 110, verse 4. So I guess your homework so far is to read Ephesians 1.20 and then Ephesians chapter 2 for application. That tells us about verse 1. And then, and then Hebrews chapter 7, which tells us about chapter, or verse 4 for application. But uh, let's keep on moving here to the problem number 3. Right. This is in verses 5 through 7. And this one isn't primarily a theological issue. This is more of a grammatical issue, which I know makes, you know, talking theology at 9 a.m. is fun. Talking grammar at, I guess it's 10 now, is, you know, way better than talking theology. Um, so let me put it bluntly. The problem in verses 5 through 7 is we have no idea who we're talking about which instills a lot of confidence in you, right? Um, all throughout this psalm, unless we're in a direct quotation, like in verse 1, um, God the Father has been referred to in third person as he or him, right? And then the Messiah has been referred to in second person, you, your. So, so David is talking to Messiah as you, Whenever he references God the Father, it's God or him or he. Um, so look at verse 4, right? The Lord, God, third person, has sworn, Messiah, you are a priest forever. Now verse 5, the Lord, so that would be third person, God, is at your, Messiah's, right hand. He, God, will shatter the kings on the day of God's wrath. All of verse 6 is he, so that means it's about, third person, God the Father. And all of verse 7 is he, which means that this entire section isn't so much talking about Messiah, but it's talking about God. However, if the function of verses 5 through 7 is to elaborate on and to describe Messiah as priest, and if it runs parallel to the first section, which I think it does, then God is in that Messiah's right hand. Messiah is at God's right hand. That's what verse 1 tells us, which means we have somehow flipped our grammar in verse 5 through 7 maybe 
So now you is no longer Messiah, but you is God, and he is Messiah. And this entire section is about Messiah, not God the Father. But there is absolutely no indication in the text that this has happened. We don't have any reason to think David has changed from addressing this prayer from Messiah to Father. Um, but we don't have any reason to think that's not what happened either. Maybe he did. I mean, the editors of the ESV put a space between four and five. Maybe that's saying, hey, we're shifting a little bit. Um, we, 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 we don't know who these last few verses are addressed to. Um, and at this point, maybe you're confused. I'm confused. Maybe it even seems like David's confused. And I have spent hours, I mean, most of my time studying this psalm has been trying to figure out who are we talking about in verses 5 through 7. I have read everything I can get my hands on. I've tried to get to the bottom of it, and I can't get to a solution, which leads me to believe that this portion of the psalm is left intentionally ambiguous for us. David wants us to be confused. He could have made this really clear for us, but he didn't. And let's be honest, this whole psalm isn't that clear by itself. It's not meant to be clear. It's meant to be prophetic. It's meant to point us towards Christ. And so we can see that in some sense, it doesn't matter who we're talking about in verses 5 through 7, because God and Messiah are so united in their mission and their plan and their will, it's as if they're carrying it out together as one person. Take, take verse 5, for example, where it says, the day of his wrath. Whose wrath? If we're talking about God's wrath, we could argue, you know, the end times, the day of judgment, is the day of God's wrath. You can cite Romans 2.5 if you want to argue it that way. Or, you can argue the day of judgment and the day of Jesus' wrath. You could cite Jesus returning on the horse with a sword in Revelation 19. The same day is called the day of God's wrath in Romans and the day of Jesus' wrath in Revelation. Or I could cite many other places. Or do we take the middle ground and say it's a day of their wrath? That's what happens in Revelation 6, 16, and 17. Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, so Father, Son, for the day of their wrath, both of their wrath has come. We learn from this ambiguity that God and Messiah work together as one. In fact, we know they are one, right? What's true of the Father is true of the Son. The Son's food is to do the will of his Father in heaven. If you have seen the Son, you have seen the Father. He is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. The Son only does what he sees the Father doing. They work together in perfect harmony, executing perfect justice, enacting perfect judgment on those who refuse Christ's lordship, while installing and acting as the perfect eternal high priest for those who do not repent and submit to his lordship. So this problem of grammar actually leads us to see the infinite, glorious, eternal nature of the Godhead. It leads us to worship his glory and warns us to repent 
and turn to the sovereign warrior priest, lest we be destroyed by his wrath. So uh, I want to leave a couple minutes for questions here just because this is such a difficult psalm. So we're going to end here. But I hope by pointing out these three difficulties and three problems that Psalm 110 creates, we see how it is actually fulfilled in Christ. Not that it just kind of hopes forward, but it sets specific theological trajectories that are only fulfilled in Jesus, the Son of God and Son of Man, coming, living, dying, rising again, and ascending to God's right hand. I I hope that I give you the impression from this psalm that we serve a great and a mighty Messiah, a sovereignly reigning warrior priest. And I pray that because of his reign, that we would voluntarily go and serve him, give everything we have. And because of his priesthood, that we would go and we would come to him for forgiveness of sins and to be brought back into the family of God. And because of his just warfare as a warrior priest, I pray that you would would fear him so that you submit as a son of God and not as an enemy who is under his feet. Um, So in our last couple minutes here, do we have any questions about the psalm? I went fast. I went deep. So I think we're talking about the present time that we're in right now. Jesus is reigning overall. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, he says in Matthew. But like, look around. We see God's enemies everywhere. We are in the time of the end, but the end has not yet come. So Jesus is sitting, waiting for God to bring all things in subjection to him when he comes on the final day, the day of his wrath. Yep, here. Yeah. Right, it's... Yeah, Charles Spurgeon said, Old Testament theology is like a richly furnished room that is dimly lit. It's beautiful. It's filled with all sorts of glories. It's just really hard to see when it's dark out. But when the New Testament comes, you have the same exact room, but the lights flipped on, and you can see all the glories that were there the whole time. So it's, yeah, the the ambiguousness, ambiguity, I guess is the word I'm looking for. It's not a bad thing. It's to make us long to see with the fullness of light in Jesus Christ. Uh, Sue has a question, though, I think. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. They willingly serve their king no matter the cost. They are happy and volunteer to fight for him. It's absolutely. All right. Well, I guess it's that time. If you have more questions, come and find me. Um, but let me let me pray for us just quickly, and then we'll break for 15 minutes before the service. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for giving us Christ, who is the fulfillment of every promise, of every trajectory, of every prophecy of Scripture. He is the yes and amen to all of your promises. So, Lord, I pray that because of our time in this difficult and confusing psalm, that we would worship him, that we would gladly submit to him, that we would come to him for our purification and our forgiveness, and that we would honor him as our sovereign, reigning king, our victorious warrior, and our sympathetic high priest. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.